1: Hello, welcome to Clifford Podcast with The Irish Examiner. Now, Sport in Modern Irish Life is the title of a new book by Paul Rose. Paul is a professor of history in UCD and as many of you will be aware, he also writes a weekly column for The Irish Examiner and presents the highly popular Irish Examiner football show podcast. This book, a collection of essays, observations and the odd story of forgotten lives, will, I think, appeal not just to sports fans, but to many who ordinarily might have very little interest in sport. It traverses across history and politics, the small dents, that even the briefest collisions with sport can have on the life and the sporting disciplines and their heroes, which are really only known to a dedicated few. As one reviewer noted about Sport in Modern Irish Life, where the book is at its best, is when Rouse finds himself easing into the unknowable endlessness of sport. What it is, what it does, where it goes. And joining me now is Paul Rouse. Paul, you're very welcome. Hi Mick, how are you? Thanks for having me. Paul, congrats on the book, I have to say. I found it somewhat compelling, particularly as you simply don't know what's coming next. And certainly as far as i could see unlike a lot of sports books in as i as i mentioned above that it has um it can have a very widespread appeal because it, it 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 deals in that element of sport that goes beyond what you might call that which the fan might define as sport particularly their own particular discipline one of the early pieces paul i think it's fair to say um it's Sort of a bit of a meditation on the passing of time. You, uh, An old teammate of yours caught you buying a pair of boots when you were hitting the old half century mark.
2: Uh, that's uh, a dreadful insult, Mick. Uh, he was no teammate. He's a <laughs> fellow who I played against um, right. for for many years. And um, this was just when I was just before I, I turned 50. And I was in a shop in Offley. And I happened to be going by Iraq. And there was a pair of football boots there and i um I was drawn to them, and i I think there's something in that I'm obviously not playing football anymore i got I rung a lot of time out of playing football, got well into my forties playing it, but um I'd finished, but there was something about the boots, it jagged something in the memory, and i was i i I tried them on, and then this guy who I would have played against had a right few. Uh, run-ins with uh, when I was playing, saw me trying on the boots, and he basically had great crack at my expense at the idea that an o lad was was chancing on a pair of boots and buying them, and then his sons come in and, um, yeah, it was about it is about the passing of time, and there is something I think when you when you finish playing football or hurling or whatever sport you play, and you're not really able to. Anymore, it doesn't matter if if you it it, it it doesn't matter if you were not brilliant or if you weren't um, an intercounty hero or any of those things. If it was a major part of your life and it's gone from that life, it's it is it is um, it's a real marking in an aging process, and that's how I looked at it.
1: Yeah, and I wonder what, is it nearly like you saw the boots and it was the uh, the instinct from sort of your own memory was, to try them on, even though it was nearly as if the passage of time hadn't happened.
2: Yeah, there's the delusion sits at the heart of my life anyway. And uh, (laughs) the the idea that I can pretend that I'm something I'm not. And to this instance, uh, it rears its head sometimes when I go out on a Thursday, Friday or Saturday night. And sometimes it rears its head when I think I may be able to run around still and do all of those things that really loved doing like I mean I think I loved playing football for Tullamore loved it and um, when I wasn't able to do that anymore it left a huge gap like I'm I'm, a monster and I think anybody who's played serious club football or serious club hurling through a large section of their lives will will know what they meant now there's some people who have a personality whereby once it's over it's over and they can walk on, but um I think for me it took a while to to recalibrate and to be honest which is sometimes you know, I walk into a Connor Park when Tullamore are playing and on some days it feels like a different lifetime when it happened. And then another time the half crosses the power says, Jeez, I'd love to be still doing that.
1: And I suppose a, a part of that, Paul, is definitely the, the the competitive edge. But the whole concept of sport, I mean, when you look at it in those terms, is it exclusively a younger person's pastime? Is it possible to hold on to it in some form as you move on through life then, do you think? Uh, it is, yeah, but nothing... There's it, There's peaks and troughs and there's
2: nothing... I suppose I was fortunate enough to play senior football for Tullamore for the guts of 20 years and played and was fortunate enough, and I don't mean this in any I lost a lot more than we won, but fortunate enough to win a couple of county medals in the process. So you get to a point in your life where you're simply not able to do that anymore, but you can still kick a ball around. So I train a couple of my kids' teams and I kick a ball around with them and I Going in with them sometimes, which is a fairly appalling prospect um, for those things. But you get, you get, it becomes part of what you do. But you can't recreate that that moment of the sheer thrill of being in the middle of a serious county championship match, where there's skin and hair flying when a year's preparation is on the line. So you can't recreate that. But I I would be very drawn to an answer that Mick O'Connell once gave Marty Morrissey when he was asked what drew him to Gaelic football. And I think in that moment, I think there are people who would have given the answer about representing where you're from or competition or all of that. And Mick O'Connell gave the best answer I've ever heard in my life. He just simply said that what drew him to Gaelic Football was one and two-word answer. He just said, the ball. Yeah. And there is something about that too. That idea of a ball which is timeless and kicking it around is something that anybody who's ever kicked the ball and enjoyed it can identify with.
1: Very much so. And it's funny you say that because you can go all the way back to uh, childhood and I was thinking, my own kids even, but at a scenario whereby sometimes when kids can just walk it's nearly like they hone in on that ball and just it's there to kick. And as you say, Mick O'Connell, possibly the greatest exponent of Gaelic football. It's a typical Miko answer, of course, as well. Like in terms of the man himself and that, but it's uh, it's a private thing on one level.
2: Well, he cut through to the to the core thing there, because when we like to talk a lot of nonsense about identity and representation and and structures of competition and belonging to part of a team and playing for something that's greater than you. And, representing ideas and all of that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's the pleasure of the ball and and that challenge. And I know a huge part of me playing football, I did like training and I did like playing matches and I did like everything that went around it. But I loved going off on my own and practising. And and I spent a lot of time practising with just a ball or a bag of balls.
1: Yeah no you mentioned about playing for a team and and, and representative and that and uh, interesting you you're you touching it a bit more historical terms and just in general terms nationalism in sport paul and you make a reference in particular to Conor McGregor wrapping the tricolor around him but just you you're an interesting line in there uh, in general the influence of nationalism in sport is more benign than in politics but it is used nonetheless it is used by individuals and organizations to further their own success is that a bit of a harsh judgment on nationalism in sport, or let me put it in more neutral fashion? Expand and expound on that, will you? Um,
2: I think when you have someone involved in commercial sports, it has never been known to lessen a crowd at a boxing match, for example, for somebody to wrap themselves in the flag and, and to say that they are representing a place. That does not mean that they don't genuinely feel Irish or feel American or feel Cuban. Or or do whatever, but to wrap yourself in the trappings when you're representing some uh, when when it's a commercialized, professionalized sport, um, seems to me to be um somewhat convenient, to put it mildly, and when there's a representative team from a place that is sanctioned by a governing body. I understand that. But for us to imagine that it's not political is nonsensical because the state apparatus supports sport. So there's two aspects to this. There's that individualised, professionalised sport where people choose to present themselves as representing a place all the while making money. That's one aspect of it. But the second aspect is the formal, state-supported, nation-based international competition which is deeply politicised. And to argue that it isn't just seems to me to be absurd. Is it always deeply politicised? In its structures it is, because on the simple model of funding and the amount of funding that comes from a state, once the state is funding anything, it politicises that thing by the very virtue of it happening. And that's the first way it's politicised. The second way it's politicised is in the manner in which symbols are wrapped around sport. So the national flag, the emblem of choice, the colour of the team jersey, the playing of an anthem, all of those are political symbols because they're national symbols. And the international competitions in which they take place or in which in which in see other nation states do precisely the same thing
1: it would strike me what you're suggesting there is um there's an issue around international competition in that respect and at the same time surely in terms of pursuing elite sport the nation states as an entity is is one way of um of doing that when you're talking about the nationalism within sport yeah International sport is the top echelon of sport. Yeah. It's inevitably going to be a national element, a nationalist element to that. And therefore is political. Inevitably, you're saying? Yeah, inevitably.
2: We can argue about the scale of the politics. We can argue about whether it's deeply intended as such or whether it's a soft politics. But to deny that it's in any way political or to suggest that it's not in any way political Seems to me to be uh, just wrong. Like I can't think once, a, once, once you fly the flag over a sporting event which you have helped to fund or helped one of the organisations to fund, then it has a for, it is a form of politics.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It's a, uh, Do you it's disagree? An like, like, like
2: this, we don't have to agree on this. And yeah. Yeah. No. Pe- no. I'm interested. People, in it. People don't have to agree with me. I like. I. I. think. Yeah. I'd be very fortunate to work in. I work in a great university in UCD, and I. I love working there, and I love teaching history there. And be part of the reason why I love both teaching in UCD and love teaching of history is is because there's space for argument. And if there isn't dissent in a university, where is there dissent? And if there isn't room for argument, I think one of the things that has changed in recent years is I disagree with you on Twitter next thing you think because oh. we disagree with each other that I'm 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 a grade A don't asshole. talk to me <laughs> like so and because they're, they're, like, there has to be room for this and yeah. I'm, I'm just putting forward my my argument oh no
1: I, I, I'm I not Paul I find it interesting but I'm, I'm just trying to tease it out to the extent that therefore um, if, if you're to go along those lines all international competition is political. Yeah. And any idea that you can separate sport from politics once you have an international element to it is a complete, in your view, in that respect, is a complete um, no-no.
2: Oh, completely. And I'll give you... It was actually actually a gas statement last week. Well, it would be funny if it wasn't so absolutely ridiculous and annoying. The International Olympic Committee was complaining about the manner in which there was the politicization of the paris games when it comes to the representation of russia and ukraine at those games and what should be allowed and shouldn't should the international olympic committee is uh, unbelievably political in so many of its aspects the idea that it should complain about the introduction of politics in the in, in the in the in the adoption of Russian and Ukrainian things in the games is just laughable and kind of sickening, to be honest with you. And the Olympics from the beginning have been riven with politics. And you 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 look look at something really simple: who sits in the soft seats every time there's an international in, in in the Aviva? There are political figures there from both sides. I'm not saying they shouldn't be there, by the way. I'm not saying that there isn't a reason
1: why they're there, but it shows you the depoliticisation of sport. Very true, good point. And you touch touching that as well, Paul, when you go into history. And a couple of elements that I found, some very uh, interesting essays there. Um, You mentioned about uh, Bloody Sunday and the events there and what that meant in terms of the GA being identified with... The, the War of Independence or what have you and therefore it was also something that could be thrown at uh, G.A.'s rivals. I think you mentioned one example that occurred down in Waterford. Tell me about that. Well, well, one of the things that, you see, I, what I
2: one of the other things that I love about history and about sport in general is that it keeps throwing up inconvenient truths. So people try to package up the past or package up the present in neat political boxes in order to sell things to other people. So one of those things is the idea that the GEA was full of nationalists who freed Ireland in the War of Independence. And of course, we know that there were more GEA people fighting for the British Army in the Battle of the Somme than there were in, in the GPO in 1916. But that inconvenient truth was lost and washed away in the decades after independence when this mythology was constructed whereby the GEA was a deeply nationalist organisation in which everyone was involved in a project of national liberation and nobody had any different political view. And of course, it's absolute silage and, and even to the naked eye, even before that, it's the kind of neat boxing that anybody who knows anything about culture knows. that, that It's just not believable. So, But part of the construction of this nationalist narrative after 1921 for the GEA also involved using that narrative to do down its main competitors in soccer and rugby. And I say this as a, someone who's been a member of the GEA all my life. But the reality of it is that the GAA engaged in a series of actions, which were fairly, fairly malignant in some of the in some of its aspects. So, for example, in the 1920s, when the state decided to put an entertainments tax on people entering the games and entering into sporting occasions, the GAA did not alone argue that it should be excused from such taxes because it was a national and nationalist organisation. It also argued that those taxes at the same time should be applied to soccer and to rugby. And one of the ways in which they did this was to demonstrate that it was to Croke Park on Bloody Sunday that, that the British Army and police and Black and Tans went in order to take on those things. And that's, that, that's fact, that they did go to Croke Park but the, the thing about it is what the GEA did was transpose a kind of a very select number of moments and apply it to the entirety of its history and its membership and use that not just to present itself in a particular light, but to castigate its opponents. And it used history as a stick repeatedly to do that did it about 19 did it about hill 16 as well by the way hill 16 i was going
1: to come to that I find that sorry that, that that's fascinating Paul, because you're right about the the myth as a Turns out, now I actually believe to be the case. So I remember explaining this to someone with my infinite wisdom once that Hill Sixteen was thus named because it had been built with the rubble from the O'Connell Street in the environs following the uh, the Rising in nineteen sixteen. And you tackled that head on. Tell us about it. Well,
2: well, it's not. And it's got a Raleigh's car pulled from the tangled ruins of it, and <laughs> and uh, Raymond Smith, brilliant journalist with the Irish. He was was before your time, well before your time though, was he? Yeah, he
1: was Irish Independent. Irish
2: Independent, uh, yeah. And he was writing a Sunday Independent column one Saturday and he went in for, in the middle of pints, the good old days of journalism, and he went in for a couple of pints in the middle of writing his column. When he came back, he changed the tone of his column and he wrote that finally he had found it. A man who had been paid, he was having a pint in a Dublin pub in the the Oval Bar, who had told him that he, uh, he was one of the lads who had been paid for pulling the rubble from the GPO and from the rest of O'Connor Street up across the cobbled streets of the north side of Dublin and into Crow Park in order to build Hill 16. The great difficulty with the story is that that hill actually opened in November 1915 for, for use, and the story was invented in the 1930s. And in fact, what makes it all the more brilliant as an exposition of the mythologies of nationalism is that the hill was actually called Hill 60, for the first 30 or 15 years of its life, where if you can say a hill was ever alive, but for the first 60, 50, it was known as Hill 60. And the point of it being called Hill 60 was that was akin to the way that the cop in Liverpool or the cop in Sheffield Wednesday was called after a hill in in the Boer War. So this idea of naming terraces after hills in fought in wars was it was already current from earlier in the twentieth century. And Hill Sixty was a battle in in World War One in which Dublin fusiliers and other members, other Irish people were fighting, and it was in the press currently at the time when the Hill opened, and it was called Hill Sixty. And in the nineteen thirties, the GEA made a decision at its Central Council to change the name from Hill 16 to Hill from Hill 60 to Hill 16, because it was inappropriate that, as it was said by one member uh, 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 a field stained with the martyred blood of the Irish should be called after a foreign war, a foreign battle fought by a foreign army in a foreign field, and that's how. So they decided they summarily changed the name and then subsequently applied a myth to it.
1: I mean, it's <laughs> when you think of it, particularly just in terms of the uh, the the what Hill Sixteen, what it represents symbolically within the GA, and it's fantastic and all that but I, I have to say I found that fascinating. That's a great format actually
2: it. this, like, I'm not deliberately trying to annoy people when I say things like that although I am trying to make them
1: think. I do, it sounds good to annoy yeah, people. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I'm
2: trying to make them think about what things are. Yeah. I, was, I met this guy, um, very nice fella. I had a great time, he was very Republican, very, very much uh, um, a believer in United Ireland, very much a believer in um, Sinn Féin politics and was sitting wearing uh, one of those Hill 16 jerseys with The City That Fought an Empire, written on it. And, and I, I just, I got on, was getting on really well and a great old chap with him. And I just said, you know, you could call that The City That Fought for an Empire as well, if you wanted. And he said, he was just aghast. And I was explaining the number of lads who had gone out to, to fight in the British Army in, in the Great War for a whole variety of different reasons. And, I mean, he 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 found it very difficult to accept what I was saying, but, but I, to me, to me the complexities of that history, the different things that people think, the different things that they have to say is what makes history interesting. And it's a much more interesting story than a history which is painted in stripes of green and orange, where we pretend... That there's goodies and baddies, a kind of a cartoon history. It just just doesn't impress me.
1: Absolutely. It also to some extent feeds into that notion that's abroad to a certain uh constituency anyway, that uh the, 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 the story of Ireland's relationship with the UK and resistance to it began in 1916 and completely washes over all that went before it because a lot that went before it wasn't necessarily involving violence or whatever, you go back to Parnell O'Connell, what have you, and, and a lot of that seems to um to get forgotten in uh, in popular culture. Anyway, just to thing on the same vein, Paul, then it strikes me. What do you think of the custom of naming GA clubs after Fenians and and some instances, possibly people of a more recent vintage in terms of their um their resistance to the British Empire, so to speak.
2: I can understand completely why that's done because they they have to be called after something. And if you look at the conventions of naming streets, naming concert halls, Royal Albert Hall, if we go down the road of deciding to change the name of everything, we're going to be in a lot of bother, and we're going to be changing an awful lot of time. So I'm, I i do not get, I don't get hung up on that. However. I will say that if we, under, if we imagine that we want to do that, we must also accept that, that people of a different persuasion and different beliefs are entitled to choose such names as they wish to call things. And we must respect that. And our problem, it seems to me, and the problem on both sides and the problem around the world is that people want others to make compromises that they're not prepared to make themselves. And that's where I that's where I probably depart from people who take that populist line.
1: Yeah. Well, definitely, and it's I suppose in, in current terms, it, it's it's a, a conversation that badly needs to be had in terms of the the current scenario on the island and and the prospect as seems more likely than unlikely now that we're going to have a a, a single jurisdiction here at some point. Why
2: do you say it's more likely than unlikely?
1: Why? I say it because I'd say in the natural order of things, if you put it. Now, when I say that, that I was just about to say, Paul, the question is when. Now, if you were to ask me, in 50 years' time, is it likely we're to have one jurisdiction in this island? I would say it probably is. If you were to say in 20 years' time, I would say it probably isn't. And I would differ with an awful lot of people in that. But it would strike me that eventually that is... is, is I wouldn't say the natural order of things, but where it's likely to end up, you wouldn't agree with that. No, I, I, I
2: just, I, I see it as not inevitable. I see it as likely as well. Um, I, I, the time frame. I don't think you're far off with the time frame. I, I, I think if you look at the demographics, demographics tell you so much about history, really, and so many of. So much of populism seems to me to be about shifting demographics and what happens when population pressures happen in in a, in a polity and what what happens around that. But I, I think if you look at it, it's only really since the 1880s that there is, in the six counties that now constitute Northern Ireland, that there is a protestant majority in those counties before that it's so the last in that respect the last 150 years were kind of a historical anomaly in very many respects but there is a really interesting thing i think and that is in in the elections in the electoral politics of 1998 to last year so we'll take it Um, basically 24 years, heading for 25 years, there is a very little shift between those who vote for nationalist parties, those who vote for unionist, loyalist parties, and those are in the middle. It's about a 1% swing either ways with stability in the middle. Now, what's happened is Sinn Féin has cannibalised the SDLP and the DUP has cannibalise UEP, allowing for the fact that the SDLP and the UEP are still there. Um, and so, so after 25 years, there's very little shift. The sense after Brexit was that this was a significant game changer and that this has created a new context in which these conversations were taking place. And I think that's right. And I think that Brexit has caused significant harm to the cause of the union I do agree with that. But what nobody has done yet in the South or in the North, including those for whom a united Ireland is supposedly their raison d'être and their driving motivational force, is to map out and say, what does this new Ireland look like? Because we, we knew under the Good Friday Agreement what an, what an agreed Ireland looked like. The question is what a united Ireland would look like. And that hasn't been done.
1: Oh I couldn't agree more. Um, not only that, my view on the thing is that it will happen eventually organically. It will happen the way the world is going for the simple reason that the kind of differences that are there quite possibly will narrow uh, compared to the kind of challenges that will be faced in the world. And I just wondered the idea of one island that small being under two separate jurisdictions, whether that will have any place in the way the world evolves. The, the old enmities, I don't think, will be the, the driving force in it all. And I agree with you totally that particularly those who, who um, were striving for United Ireland, nobody has mapped out what exactly they expect it to look like. Uh, it, seems, it seems to me a crazy thing. It seems to me that it's, it's the idea that it should be that way rather than what exactly it would be. But apart from any of that, we're getting way off the subject. But yeah,
2: it's, just, it's kind of interesting, though, isn't it? It's kind of interesting. It like, is, is it, it is. It is, is even federal, in a sporting context. Is it going to be a federal solution? Or is it going to be a unitary state? What, what's the flag? What's the anthem? More than that, what's the health system look like? What does the educational system look like? What is the What is the history that will be taught in schools? And so on and on and on. What is the currency that will be used? All across the way, these are, these are really profound, significant questions which are not theoretical. These are practical considerations which nobody, in my view, has significantly grappled with. What people are grappling with is the idea of the numbers. They're playing the numbers game. Mm. When will the numbers in favour of this vote or that vote or uh, this, this vote or, uh, or yes or no... When will they shift sufficiently for it to be a yes rather than a no? But, but that's, in a way, the easy part of the conversation. It's, and, it's, and it's impossible to have that conversation properly or realistically or seriously beyond a pose unless you grapple with the idea of the practicalities of what it will look like. Or we end up with the absolutely riven dog's dinner that you have with Brexit in England, where they have impaled themselves on the stake of their own making and seem, they seem, if,
1: if if truth be told, to dangle there for quite a while. Oh, no question. The world, and while we're on my own opinion, Paul, is that a, a lot of the people who are striving for it and who see their political re- um, existence as being to strive for it, they seem to have a general... Idea that what's involved is to the greatest extent attaching the six counties onto what it, uh, currently exists with the twenty-six, and off we go. And I I, 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 see no prospect of that happening, certainly in the in the short medium term. Anyway, well, they, well, they haven't read any history. If 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 they claim they're obsessed with history, yeah,
2: but it's they haven't read any real history. They haven't looked at the reality of of the divides that are there or the structures that are needed or the changes that are necessary. And I'm not even talking about Irish history. I'm talking about what happens when you put two different polities together, let alone the divisions that are in it. It's exceptionally difficult to do this when will is good. Look at how hard, look at the enduring divides in Germany between East and West. You know, some 30 years on, 35 years on, from from the from the wall coming down and the and the collapse then of subsequently of of all across Eastern Europe, but in particular in this instance, Eastern Eastern Germany, and look at the enduring issues around income. Um, to, to choose just one title and the sense of and that's where people will all say that they are German. So that's not. These are these are really really difficult conversations to have amongst ourselves as people who say they are Irish and wish for a united Ireland. And, and I will say straight out that I would like to see a united Ireland yeah. myself. Fine, but but not 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 through coercion or anything like that. But I would want to see it. I I, I do like in general, and I don't even know really why. That is. But I, there is something in there that says yes. It seems to me that that would be fine. But before we even, we don't even know what we want ourselves properly. Let alone how we deal with people who don't want to be here. In in sorry, As in don't want to be in the United Ireland. Or don't want there to be a United Ireland.
0: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. What do
1: you think of, once we've strayed onto this subject, what do you think of um, small things, relatively small things? Like, for example, having a single soccer team representing the island as we do in rugby. I mean, you know, to me, that's a very small thing in terms of the overall issue, yet even that doesn't seem like a likely prospect in the near future.
2: Well, sure, that will require some set of administrators on either side of the border to give up their power and their job, and we know from the the megalomania of sporting administrators means that that's kind of unlikely that they're going to vote for their own particular Christmas as turkeys. Um, I I can see I can see that happening. I can see there being an Ireland soccer team ultimately, but. For there to be a United Ireland rugby team, it still causes dissent. Look at the reaction of people to the playing of Ireland's call and how many people just just resent it and resist it. Oh,
1: it's, an aw- it's an awful dirge anyway. Paul, yeah, talking?
2: I know. I know. See, I knew you were going to say that. And, it's, <laughs> and it is the first reaction of everybody. But it kind of doesn't matter that it is because it's the sentiment. It's a sentiment yeah. that. Always oh, I've, I've no problem of, with
1: the actual playing of something. Yeah,
2: so so yeah, but even that song, the sentiment of that song, right? And and I say to i i i i, I talk to students or I talk to older people about this as well, and they say, oh, I don't want to give up the national anthem. So what I generally do is go Shinafina fall at hafya aligirin bwindar slow bwindar slow bwindar slow. What does that mean? Put up your hand if you know what that means, and. But what it is, is that it's an anthem where people can make the right noises at the right places. Yeah. But the great majority of people do not know what the words of the National Anthem means.
1: Well, I agree completely. I agree completely. And it struck me, even any time you go to Croke Park for, uh, I mean, I can understand the National Anthem, for example, in terms of the G.A. being played before an All-Ireland final. Does it have to be played before the semi-finals, before the Leinster finals?
2: Is all that necessary? That's tradition, I suppose. Sport, the past weighs heavily upon the future in sport and on the present, it sits there and it it is a statement. I think the idea of, does it have to be? No, but it's chosen to be, but you go beyond that. It's really worth people having a look. It's worth going online and having a look at this. Look at the charter of the GEA. Look at the one page that's there and the stuff that's written about it. It was written fifty years ago, and it's so far, out, it's so out of date. You would not know where to begin with it. What you do know is that it has to be changed. It just, it just, in the language that it uses, in 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 the prioritization of certain aspects of the G, it's just not realistic. I almost everybody I know who's involved in the GEA is involved in it for sporting reasons. I. It's very hard for me to think of people who are in it, to see it as an expression of nationality. And there are people for whom it is also an expression of nationality, but not as a primary focus, as a primary goal. You should do that. Mick, you should write a column on that. You should write a column on the GA's charter. Have a look at it.
1: I will think,
2: would you write one yourself, Paul? Oh, I've, I've, done look it, at it. I've done it a couple of times. It tends not to be too popular. <laughs>
1: No, I, I I'd be very interested in in the, no having said that again. Combining nationalism and 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 sport, it's also the case that a lot of GA people, because they were identified as that, suffered at the hands of the likes of loyalist paramilitaries and what have you during the recent troubles. hundred percent counties, and oh, it was oh, a form oh, of oh, refuge for people as well. You know, a hundred percent.
2: We have to be clear here. i have to be clear here for for people who are deeply nationalist living in. Northern Ireland, who find in the GA an expression of their nationalism. That's a different thing for many of those people, or for some of those people at least, than it is for someone like me who grew up in rural County Offaly or from you, for you with Kerry or someone from the north side of Dublin or whoever, wherever you want to go. That's the first thing. The, thing. the second thing about it is we can talk in the abstract all we want but Northern Ireland was for a very long time a deeply corrupt state an exclusionary state in so many ways nobody nobody can deny that in any in any serious way or in any plausible sustainable way but um that but that's a lived reality for some people and not for others
1: yeah absolutely um Paul it's been interesting we haven't spoke as much as we as we were going to Ara, as I intended to about your book but i think anybody who heard the conversation will know you've plenty to say and it is fascinating and it does come from a take that is not populist in the least which i think is always going to be interesting particularly today i should let people know as you may have guessed already paul Love of history uh, was very evident recently in another podcast altogether. That's the UK one. Uh, the rest is history. He he traversed over, I think it was about over four programs as a pal. You went through Irish history, the last what three or four hundred years. I have to say, I was riveted by it.
2: Oh, thanks very much, Mick. It was it was a really it was an incredibly enjoyable thing to do. Um, it uh, it was very challenging, and again, not everyone will agree with. Things that I say, and that's fine. I'm I'm very capable of being wrong repeatedly. Um, uh, but on that podcast, I really enjoyed it, and it was it was for people who haven't heard of it. It's uh, Dominic Sandbrook and Tom Holland came over. We went to the GPO and we recorded. I did three of the four episodes, um, and uh, Dan Jackson did the fourth one. And basically, what it did was about eight hundred years of Irish history, um, taken and maybe even a little bit longer, taking us through to the 1916 rising and ending with the executions after the rising. And uh, I learned an awful lot doing it, actually. Um, I read a whole lot of history that I hadn't read in a long time, and the scholarship had changed on it. And it was a really, it was a brilliant exercise and a brilliant experience to... To, to, to do it with all the, the limitations that are involved in terms of time and space and what you can say and what you can't say and the vagaries of in interpretation and it won't be for everyone but that's fine.
1: Great stuff. No, I would highly recommend it to anybody. Uh, for now, Sport and Modern Irish Life is the name of the book. Paul Rose, as we've been talking to, is the author published by Marion Press. Folks, if you want to... Uh, kick back and have a philosophical view of life in general as you're on the old summer holliers I'd highly recommend it Paul thanks very much for joining us today
2: thanks for having me Mick
1: as always on the Tacker Engineer JJ Vernon thank you folks for listening we'll be back again take it easy